Mini Episode 1448 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1448. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris, and we have a tremendous honor as far as what we're going to be doing today to break down Super Bowl 56 and to reflect back on this. We have an excellent uh, guest, someone who has covered multiple Super Bowls and someone who is uh, in many ways a pioneer in the world of sports journalism. I just noted to her off air, uh, one, one of the most relevant things for this conversation is being named one of GQ's five ideal dinner guests. And, uh, you know, that's the uh, the vibe I'm sure you'll be getting from this conversation here. Uh, this is uh, somebody who is legendary in so many ways and uh, on, on her bio, uh, first woman to do uh, any number of things here. Uh, and, and again, whether it be uh, winning the Emmy Sports Lifetime Achievement Award, Pro Football Hall of Fame, handle a Super Bowl trophy presentation on air, winning the Billie Jean King Outstanding Journalist Award, uh, to, to, first to cover the NBA Finals or the World Series or the Super Bowl, first one on a Super Bowl uh, sideline. Uh, to carry the Olympic torch, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, they get the idea. They get the idea. <laughs> well, hey, man, I always, I try to put over our guests strong. They always appreciate that. So, you know, know that's. But uh, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have happened without tremendous. I was always hired by men, of course, because I was always the first woman. But I had tremendous men who gave me those opportunities. And, uh, yeah, the GQ, uh, the ideal dinner guests was um, really something totally unexpected. And a couple of the others were um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the great historian. And uh, another one was Maureen Dowd, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, uh, you know, you really had to be up for it. Well, I can tell you, uh, Leslie Visser, uh, if the list of accomplishments is a bit much, take it up with your webmaster because that's where I'm getting all of this. But uh, you, you really, you, you, you built a, an outstanding record being able to to go through you know, first in, in print journalism uh, with the Boston Globe and then to CBS. It's an interesting thing, by the way. I was thinking about this uh, before you came on, and I was I was jotting down a couple of names here over a period of time. We've worked our way through a lot of uh, one-time CBS employees in a lot of different ways, whether it be the late, great Peter Scolari from uh, Newhart, of course, uh, or Ian Eagle, Charlie Casserly on the football side, uh, on the news side, Charles Osgood, Rebecca Jarvis, Russ Mitchell, Armin Katayan. But uh, one of the ones that really came to mind at, at the risk of embarrassing you further was Bob Barker, because uh, for everything that uh, he did writ large in the, uh, the game show industry, uh, I feel like that's what you have been able to do in the course of your career and in the course of uh, really helping to uh, create the whole role of the sideline reporter. It really, you, you were there sort of at, at the genesis of that, and you, you've covered any number of things, uh, again, as we were talking about, presiding over trophy ceremonies and things like that, and 
these were things that, as you say, the opportunities you were given, but if you weren't making the most of them, they would have dried up. Well, thank, yeah, thank you for that. I have to say, all those CBS greats I got to work with, I started at the Boston Globe. They made me the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat, and that's when papers were king, and the Boston Globe, we always got voted the number one, not because of me, but the number one sports section in America. So we had Bud Collins on tennis. I would go to Wimbledon with him. Peter Gammons on baseball. Yes. I did the World Series with him. The NBA Finals with Bob Ryan. So when I got to CBS, uh, I really felt comfortable with all the sports. I just didn't know the technology of TV, but I worked with all of those. My first Final Four, I think I've covered 35 of them, but the first one was um, Brent Musburger and Billy Packer, you know, and by the last ones I did, it was um, Jim Nance and Clark Kellogg. And in between, I got to do tournament, the NCAA tournament with Bill Walton, and Dick Enberg, and Bill Raftery, and Bert Lundquist, and of course, many with Jim Nance. So um, I feel really, really, really privileged to have worked with all the people that I have. Yes, you, you've worked with a, with a roll call, a, a who's who there. And, uh, you know, you mentioned about the Boston Globe. And I remember, and this is a thing back to, I guess, the 80s, when uh, I remember trying to get my hands on the out-of-town copy of it, because I think it would be Sunday that you would have that very, very voluminous Peter Gammons column. And uh, that would be worth driving halfway across town for to try to get your hands on. So, yeah, I mean, the Boston Globe, uh, that, that because of all of you who were there on that masthead, uh, that was really something that was uh, revered all over the place in journalism. Well, it never used to be that, um, and thank you for that. Yeah, Peter, we really, the Boston Globe invented those Sunday notes columns. So mm -hmm. Peter did all the baseball. You know, he'd go down to the Dominican Republic in the 70s to scout, you know, the <laughs> But, uh, and Bob Ryan would do it on basketball, and the great Mo McDonough would do it on football. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a time when uh, print reporters did not go into TV, but the Globe was really the start of that. Um, Bud Collins was the first in tennis, then Will McDonough and I, Will went to NBC, I went to CBS, and now, you know, you see all kinds of print reporters uh, on television. So the industry... You know, it's really moved along. I, I always tell, I have to do quite a bit of speaking, as you might imagine, and I always tell young people, particularly women, that there are three non-negotiables, I believe. I, I think you'll make it in this business if, one, you have passion, because if you don't love it, don't do it. You know, it'll come out to be angry that you didn't make enough money or someone else got a different assignment. Two, you need knowledge. Um knowledge brings confidence so if you really know what you're looking at turn the sound down in the beginning call the game for yourself and third you have to have stamina because certainly you know you've been around a long time and you know that ferris wheel goes up goes up but it also comes down oh absolutely and that's one of those things where i, I would think that uh some of the young people that you speak to over a period of time uh, they're probably pretty dumbfounded in terms of, you know, your career with it, again, starting off in print and then moving into broadcast. If you'd had any aspirations to get in broadcast at that time, that's how it would have had to have gone. Because I'm not going to say there was zero female sportscasters on earth, but there really wasn't that many of them. And that was something that sort of more got created, I guess, in the 80s and, and forward versus today. You have uh, a lot of women who are coming out of college. This is what they want to do. They're doing broadcast all along. They're preparing for it. And, and the notion that there was once a world where you couldn't just come out of college 
and, and expect to be doing uh, sports broadcasting at a high level must be dumbfounding to some of them when they first kind of learn of that. Well, it's been a real frontier, even when I started at the Globe, uh, because I was the first woman covering the NFL, the actual credentials that I wore said no women or children in the press box. You know, they had no ladies' rooms. And then when I went to CBS, they had Phyllis George, who was fabulous and a wonderful great friend of mine. But the people who ran CBS said, we had a woman who knew TV, but she didn't know sports. So this time we're going to hire someone who knows sports and will teach you the TV. And it's enormously gratifying. I was just out in L.A. I think that was about my 35th Super Bowl. And there are just women everywhere, podcasts, broadcasts, you know, they're writers. So I'm really thrilled the way the business has opened up for women. It really has progressed over a period of time. And, uh, again, the, the Super Bowl is something that you've really gotten to see from all angles. Uh, whether it be covering the uh, the broadcast live or or being an observer of it, and and this is where again I know your your thoughts on this are going to be uh, very very interesting. Uh, I, I know a big part of what goes into this, uh, as far as the, uh, the 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 work itself, would be those production meetings ahead of time, meeting with the coaches and some of the key players, and trying to get inside their heads a little bit. And that to me, uh, that's an aspect I was thinking about a lot this time around with the whole teacher-pupil aspect of Sean McVay and Zach Taylor. and I, We were speculating on our uh, preview show about uh, whether or not uh, there was going to be any type of overthinking involved. Well, they might think I'm gonna, we're going to do this, so let's do this instead. And In my mind, that did manifest itself because uh, a team like the Bengals that uh, relied very, very disproportionately on the ground with uh, Joe Mixon, more so than most teams. I mean, he was third in the league in rushing, but they were 23rd in rushing as a team. So when they were rushing the ball, predominantly it was with him. So what do they do in a couple of key uh, third and short situations go away from him? Oh, they won't see it coming. And famously, right. it, yeah, it didn't work because most of the time when people don't see something coming, there's a good reason for it. It's because it wasn't a very good idea. So I mean, I'm sure that's something that you probably saw over a period of time as well, that, you know, coaches trying, you know, outthinking themselves a little bit when they're matching up with somebody else, whether it's a mentor of theirs or whether it's somebody who knows them very well. That has to be something that's a very human temptation as far as uh, trying to stay one step ahead of the other team. Yeah, I think by now most coaches um, have coached against or with the people that they're seeing on the other side of the field. I remember, of course, we saw Belichick, you know, was so close to Parcells and was opposite Parcells and was back with Parcells. Mm -hmm. So you see it, you see it all over the place. I, I think that Zach will get a lot better. I think a little bit of his youth or inexperience kind of showed on the two fourth and one plays. And also at the end of the game, you know, that was just a little messy, but it was, uh, the Rams really have no weaknesses, and you could have made the case for Von Miller or Aaron, really Aaron Donald, I guess, uh, Aaron Donald being the MVP. And, you know, usually they give it to the quarterback, and Matt Stafford had, you know, a really a solid game. But, uh, and Cup was the greatest postseason receiver in history. Even his numbers are better over this postseason than Jerry Rice. So, you know, that team was really balanced and, uh, you know, who knew that after never having a team play at home, now we've had two of them in a row. So I think, uh, I thought it was a really, the whole playoffs, I think, what was it, 
the last seven games were all decided within three points at yes. the end of regulation. So, right. You know, it was, it was just um, just a bonanza for the NFL, and it's everything, of course, that they dream of on Park Avenue. Oh, absolutely. I don't, no doubt about that. And uh, when you look at this, uh, this is a thing where, again, uh, sometimes uh, you, you find players or coaches that are very, very lucky to end up being on the winning side because of how they're remembered. And this is a thing where, and I'm going to reference an event that is not fondly remembered where I live on America's North Coast, and that would be the 2016 World Series, uh, where I always felt like Joe Madden was very lucky that the Cubs won. Because if you look at it through the course of the World Series, Terry Francona, with a much lesser hand, really outmanaged him in a lot of key points. Nobody remembers that. People remember that. And, and Madden's a brilliant guy. He deserves to be remembered as a champion, and he's got that World Series title. But I felt like boy, he's lucky that nobody's going to remember all the dribs and drabs during that that added up over the course of the seven games. I look at Sean McVay the same way, and I've been a guy, I was one of the early Sean McVay guys out there, really thought that he was brilliant. I have one of these beliefs in bloodlines, you know, and, and that's a thing where knowing that his grandfather was a key executive with the 49ers, I'm a believer in things like that, but I look at this game, and all the times on first down and just pounding it into the line with futility. Uh, the great Bill Barnwell, who I follow on Twitter, kept saying, I can't believe they weren't using that to set up for play action even once. You know, I mean, you look at it through the course of the game. They, they went to, to Cooper Cup early and then not at, again until the final drive. Like, this is one of these things where I think McVeigh is very fortunate to be on the winning side because he would have gotten dissected six ways to Sunday, I think, had they come up short. Well, I'm not sure you can know that, but you can know what you have in Cooper Cup. And, the, you know, the Super Bowl was going to be in his hands. He was going, which just makes me, rather than to uh, diminish McVay, it sure. makes me exalt Cup because I think the Super Bowl was on his hands and he got it. And uh, that's what just makes it so dramatic that, I mean, he was the Offensive Player of the Year. Now he won the Super Bowl. He led everybody in receptions. So you just you don't know where players are going to come from, and then how are they going to be in the moment? You know, I was on the field for both those Vinatieri Super Bowl kicks, and now, you know, we see the young kid from Cincinnati, Money Mac. Mm -hmm. So you really don't know where someone is going to step up, and that's, that's actually what I always love about sports. It's the great meritocracy uh it doesn't matter where your mother went to college or how much money you have you know if you hit the jumper or you sink the putt that's you and um yeah some people are fortunate to have those bloodlines which doesn't mean they're going to be great it doesn't mean that mark davis is al davis but it gives you the opportunity to be around it at a very young age you see it a lot in broadcasting of course joe buck is excellent, all Ernie Johnson, father, grandfather. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always happen that they're great just because they're related. Oh, we know that in Cleveland, because I was a big believer in Pat Shermer because of uh, the bloodlines with uh, Uncle Fritz, and uh, it didn't work out so well when he was here. So, yes, <laughs> as you point out, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. And, yes, Cooper Cup with one of the great seasons for any wide receiver ever. But uh, in terms of – Again, the fact that it was really sort of the donut hole of not getting the ball in the middle of the game, even after Beckham went down, uh, they already didn't have their starting tight end going into the game. The fact that Robert Woods got hurt is what brought Beckham to L.A. in the first place. It, it, was that the kind of thing that you would ever sort of pick up on in a production meeting of where coaches would talk about, well, we don't want to be too obvious in what we're doing? Because, again, 
The obvious thing would have been, you go to Cooper Cup until it doesn't work. And they weren't doing that until the final drive when they had the gun to their heads, and they went to him, and lo and behold, it worked. So as far as the, the tendency to want to avoid the obvious, was that the kind of thing that you would ever hear coaches talking a lot, about a lot before the games? Uh, they don't express it that way. They Normally, it's um, here's where we see we can have an advantage. Okay. Here's where, you know, we do we have to double Odell, you know, or how are we going? I mean, the, the rushing defense, you know, was pretty good. I mm-hmm. mean, people always forget the defense. Sure. But um, I think that's what they have to say. Who do we need to step up? Where do we think we have the edge? And, you know, those edges, they're small. And, you really have to give so much credit to Joe Burrow because he knew he was going to get sacked. You know, mostly this year he's been looking up at the sky, and yet I don't. Did you see where he went and introduced himself? Yes. To both Von Moore. <laughs> I thought that was great. So I, I just say, you know, and comebacks in the Super Bowl. I, I don't know if you can get better than that. I mean, I guess the best thing in sports, right, is a Game Seven. But comebacks in the Super Bowl are pretty impressive too. So, and I remember I did the game where, you know, Brady had taken over for Drew Bledsoe against the Rams. And um, John Madden said on the air, I just play for the tie and go for overtime. And Tom Brady wasn't going to do that. And those weren't household name receivers. He didn't have Randy Moss back then. But you just, uh, I'm just always impressed when somebody's um, skill or confidence meets the moment. Yes, and that was very much a thing. And uh, again, I, I'm a Joe Burrow guy just because, uh, again, uh, he plays for the Bengals, which is a rival of my hometown team. But uh, I went to Ohio University, and I actually called games in Athens Stadium, uh, high school football games, before it was Joe Burrow Stadium. So, you know, the, the kid is basically an honorary Bobcat. All of us Bobcats are very fond of him, or most of us anyways. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I... Wow, I that's pretty cool. How about this? Here's a question for you. Uh-huh. There have been, because this relates to your hometown, okay. I was just part of a documentary on this. Do you know there have been 50 million pitches thrown in Major League Baseball and one killed a guy at the plate? Yes. Did you know that? Yes. Uh, Ray Chapman. And uh, I think Ray I, Chapman. I've even, I think I've seen his uh, grave at, at Lakeview Cemetery. Uh, it's up there with some of the famous people, I be- if I'm remembering correctly, at Lakeview Cemetery in town and uh yes that is uh, yeah 1920 i believe which uh it was. weirdly it enough was. you know what you know what it was back then that mm-hmm. pitchers remember they could scuff the ball that's right tobacco on it and so he was a righty but it, uh it was like a sidewinder um Mays had a sidewinding pitch mm-hmm. and so it came around and hit him in the temple before he could really see it and he went right down and of course he was a yankee and me as a born bred and bled Bostonian, mm-hmm. Carl Mays was actually in that trade with Babe Ruth. So the heck with Wow. Him. Well, yeah. And that's where, and, and if I remember correctly, I believe that was the impetus uh, for the end of the uh, the dead ball era, getting rid of the spitters and everything like that, yes. that they were, because they, they deemed it to be too dangerous. And that's where the spitters and the doctoring had to go. Uh, and that's where, and we haven't had another fatality since. Oddly enough, one of the two years that uh, Cleveland won the World Series uh, along with 1948, and uh, a couple of uh, painful near misses in my lifetime, but, uh, you know, uh, another story for another day. But, yes, yeah, sports well, wait, g- gives us a lot of drama. Uh-huh. I did the World Series with um, Al Michaels and Tim McCarver, uh, you know, the Cleveland-Atlanta right. World Series, right. and it was so much fun. I, hadn't the Jake just opened that year? Yes. Kenny Lofton, I mean, you had such an exciting team. 
Yes, very much so. And I always felt like that that team, there were a lot of comparisons people made, and I feel like it stacks up. The 95 Indians, when you look at the offensive uh, power of that team up and down the lineup, and like you said, Lofton too, so there's speed in there as well. A lot of people felt that it matched up. You go back 20, 25 years to the Big Red Machine also in our state, of course. Uh, a lot of people felt that it matched up. Now, again, Cincinnati, they were able to bring home the trophy a couple of times, and uh, the Indians of that period of time. You're telling worked. a born, bred, and bled Bostonian yes. about the 75 Cincinnati Reds? You might want to read that. I have, well. We, <laughs> thought, we thought this series ended with Bisque's home run. Well. Well, Leslie, of course, I'm, I'm introducing that for all of these sports folks out there who may not know that. Of course, that's uh, seared in your mind. And uh, if, if hey, if it means anything to you, uh, your Boston teams have seared a lot of things in the minds of uh, my Cleveland teams over a period of time. Uh, albeit, uh, I, as I always point out, not the 2017 and 2018 NBA Eastern Conference Finals, but uh, again, that's... Yes, a... <laughs> yes. oh my God, yes. <laughs> of course, that's another story for another day as well, but, you know, it's funny, we're talking about Cincinnati here, and, uh, you know, as opposed to the Big Red Machine, which was absolutely loaded, uh, you look at this Bengals team here now, and that, again... By anybody's definition, this team was way ahead of schedule as far as being able to make it to the Super Bowl in year two of Burrow. And while you may not be somebody, you may not define yourself as, as a sports historian, but to me, I feel like you are because of the, the amount of time that you've covered these things, everything that you've seen firsthand. So you're a perfect person to ask about this because I can't think of too many precedents here. Had Cincinnati actually won that game? With as incomplete a team as they had, no offensive line, uh, as we saw yet again, poor Joe getting tossed hither and there uh, as he was in the Tennessee game. I, I feel like in the back seven, they definitely need a lot of depth as well. Although, again, it was the coaching job of all time to shut down Kansas City in the second half of the AFC championship game. But, but for a team with as many holes as they still have to have won the Super Bowl, I can't think of a precedent for that of a team being able to burst through that quickly. Well, you know, I don't know that people felt Trent Dilfer was, you know, the greatest quarterback of all time. And mm -hmm. in that case, of course, the defense was so brilliant. Sure. But it was, uh, if they just, obviously, they just really need some offensive linemen. Yes. I think the rest of the team is, is in pretty good shape. And, uh, yeah, of course, Burrow just seems protected by his innocence or something. He doesn't know that, right. <laughs> that he went so far so quickly but also you see you see different people jumping up the quarterback position has changed so much when we all grew up it was the drop back you know and now it's Mahomes with the shuffle pass and uh people throwing off their toes and uh running like Lamar so I think this is in my time the most exciting time I've seen in the NFL it definitely is an exciting period of time and uh, there's so many different angles of things that get covered and I, I will bring this up uh, somewhat hesitatingly and somewhat haltingly when, when I say that your friend Al Michaels was uh, maybe taking a little bit of heat in my hometown here this week for the whole thing of like, oh, th I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Thank God Odell got out of Cleveland and got onto a winner. You know, there's, you know, that whole storyline well, there. he did. He had two cities. I did everything with Al. I did Monday Night. I was the first woman on Monday Night Football. So right. I did Monday Night Football with Al. I did the World Series with Al. I did the Triple Crown with Al. Mm -hmm. So he's actually one of my closest friends. But Al doesn't 
meant anything. Yeah. You know, he was really grateful when Cleveland, when you got that beautiful Ritz Carlton, because that, you know, sure. that, that suited Al. But, and he loved baseball. He loved doing the World Series there. But yeah, he's, um, you know, he's hard on cities. Remember, he had a go round with Minneapolis because right. the Super Bowl was there. He, so, uh, yeah, I think he's, uh, one thing about him, he is no fraud. Um, oh, right. Michaels, he's the best ever, I think, play by play. And I was married to the great Dick Stockton. And I, yeah. I still can say that, you know, Al, Al really, in and out of every sport, is just at the highest level. But uh, I, I like him because he, you know, he says what he thinks. Yes, he does. And this is a thing where, too, and, and, and again, my sense of him from afar uh, is that, again, and this, this may have been his last uh, broadcast with NBC, we'll see how that shakes out contract-wise, but obviously that's not anything that would have affected his performance one way or another, and that's a thing where, again, as far as the direction of the broadcast, he's going to go along with that, he's going to be a team player, would, would certainly be my sense and most people's sense of this. It seems like over a period of time, and feel free to disabuse me of this notion, but of, of where on the production side and the network side, the whole thing of like storylines and stuff, at the risk of being a crusty old guy, I don't really remember some in an, a summer all in Madden really talking storylines or you know off-field intrigue or things like that. And, and that's where the Beckham thing, to me, it just seems more a function of sort of this modern age of like, hey, let's put something out there for the non-fans who are watching our broadcast today. So am I wrong that that's become something that's been more a period of time sort of pushed by networks and, and production as far as trying to hook in no more non-football fans and get into storylines? Uh, no, that's not really new at all. It was just that John and Pat and that's when I started at CBS, just had a completely different philosophy. I mean, always the up close and personal, that's sure. what ABC made their name on. Of course. And they were very much on Monday Night Football, have all kinds of different stories to pull into it. And John was somebody who didn't like, you know, just showing uh, the way ABC approached the game, showed fewer people on the field. And John was the one who said, no, I want to see all 22. And when he built his Madden game, that was something he insisted on. So John was just, but John brought a million things. Uh, I mean, I rode his bus with him. I did quite a few of those Madden Summerall games. And John, you know, he would, you know, he would circle Nate Newton if there were a piece of paper on the, on the cowboy field, he'd circle it and say that was a Snickers bar that fell out of his <laughs> uniform. So, right. I mean, he, you know, he was a story guy, too. So, sure. yeah, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'd agree with okay. that. Okay. Could, hey, could be recency bias on my part. You know, we, we all tend to remember, uh, you know, the old days a little bit differently here, and uh, perhaps uh, that's what I'm doing. And I, I want to get back to John Madden uh, in a second here, but on the specifics of uh, one of the Super Bowls that you mentioned previously uh, covering, uh, the the, uh, the last time the Rams won the Super Bowl, I believe I read something somewhere where you rated that as your favorite game that you had covered. Uh, the 23-16 to 16 win, Tennessee comes up a yard short. Uh, was I reading that correctly? Had you listed that as your, your favorite uh, Super Bowl that you'd covered? Yes, my okay. favorite Super Bowl, but it had a lot of factors going into it. It was our Monday Night Crew. It was on ABC, mm -hmm. and I had the Rams. I was on the Rams sideline very close to where Jones stopped Dyson, and it was just to me so 
just the uh, confluence of all the factors that they were the greatest show on turf, offense, offense, offense. And then it was like a little known linebacker who stopped Kevin Dyson. And I was just to tease Kevin, you know, he used to say, God, if I was just a little bit taller, if my arm was just a little bit longer. And, and you know, that I just thought because I was there on that sideline rather than being in a press box or somewhere else. Um, the Vinatieri kicks were really exciting too, but I just felt um, I was happy for Dick Vermeil. It was great for Kurt Warner, uh, you know, Marshall Falk, all those great receivers. Plus in the end, it was a defensive play. So I, I really, I just really enjoyed that one personally. Um, you know, I've had others that had final fours that I've loved and sure. all, all other sports. Well, and it's funny because this this might be a, a difference in perspective here, but uh, again, because I see that game put on a lot of lists, a lot of short lists for greatest Super Bowl of all time, and it's funny because my buddies and I that watch our uh, Super Bowls together, we always kind of chuckle on that one, like, really? The game that was 9 nothing at halftime, and we were feeling kind of drowsy watching the first half, like... To, to a couple of us, that game sort of coasts on the reputation of, yes, a great second half, a great fourth quarter, and everything like that. But as opposed to, you know, 60 minutes of enthralling action, uh, there, there's a couple of us that might not see it that way. But uh, it, it, it is. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I think it was a year or two before that. Broncos Packers. That's one of those ones people sleep oh, on. Oh, that was great. The helicopter. Yes. Oh, that was Yes. That was great. That was great. That's yes. a great one. Okay. Yeah, see, I wasn't on the field for that one. So okay. That photo, but that was a fantastic finish. Oh, yes. my God. And Elway, he waited so long. I mean, I covered the one in, uh, what was it, 89, uh, remember, down in New Orleans, yes. where he just crushed. Um, so, yeah, that that's a really good call there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And and I assure you, uh, Leslie, as a Clevelander, uh, I remember every one of John Elway's uh, Super Bowls. And uh, yeah, that's that that is me being objective as heck to say that I thought that was maybe the greatest Super Bowl when it's Elway that's getting it, which, by by the way, uh, another thing that we've joked about on the show here, if you go back over a period of time, I know you weren't covering this. It was on the other network, but really funny how it's only people from Cleveland who notice in the 1987 AFC championship game that Rich Carlos's kick actually didn't go through the uprights. It's kind of funny how the rest of the world <laughs> ignores that. You know what you have to say? Yeah. Um, I'm really good friends with Ernie, of course, and you just have some brilliant people up yes. there. And I hung out for a while out in L.A. with Bernie. Mm-hmm. So you have really good people, really good people. From oh, Cleveland. yeah. Well, he just, and this is something we were talking about recently as well, of uh, – what, everything that he was able to do at that period of time, it's kind of funny with the USFL coming back, albeit in a completely different form, but a big part of the foundation of that Browns juggernaut in the late 80s came out of that. Mike Johnson at linebacker, I believe Dan Fike, one of our great offensive tackles, and on and on and on. Ernie did a very good job of raiding the bones of the USFL when it came apart. Yeah, and he was, look, he was brilliant when he, he was with Baltimore with Unitas and mm-hmm. then he was with the Giants in their winning years. So, yeah, he's, uh, I always think it's a privilege. I always, in my life, I've learned the most from people like Ernie or coaches. I've learned a lot from Bill Walsh, obviously from John Madden, from Parcells, from Rick Pitino, from Mike Krzyzewski, from Rick Majerus. So I, I've really felt to me like um, I was given the gift of the education of all of these people. Well, yes, you've worked with some amazing, amazing people. And as I said, I wanted to get to the John Madden part because, uh, again, uh, of course, you being one of the speakers at his memorial service, and uh, I really enjoyed everything that you had to say because it was one of these things where, uh, again, memorial services are a, a sad occasion by definition. That's why you're there. 
but everything that you had to say, uh, it always, to those of us who didn't know John Madden personally, it felt like it was certainly in his spirit, because John Madden was somebody that always made you laugh. He always entertained the viewers and everything like that, and it was the perfect kind of lighthearted, I thought, summation, some of the great uh, stories. And Again, I feel like, just in my personal opinion, if you had a growing the game Mount Rushmore, uh, I, I think it would be Ed Sable, Steve Sable, John Madden, Pete Rozelle. I, I think those four probably did the most to help take uh, football from, again, at the start of your career, it was still behind baseball in this country, but uh, somewhere probably in the 80s, it really, you know, kind of passed it by. And uh, I, I, I feel like those four well, had an awful lot to do no, with that's that. That's really good. No, um, I think you might just have to pick one Sable, even though, yeah, both were giants. Sure. But it was, um, what happened with the NFL was that um, it is a television sport. Mm -hmm. And that's what Pete Rozelle understood. And um, I think, look, I know you're probably, everybody was down on Art Modell, but, you know, he didn't have <laughs> the money that right. these billionaires all have. He didn't handle it well, probably. But, I mean, he he knew that, you know, just with that stadium, he couldn't carry it. But I think the... The reason that football passed was, you know, people got more impatient about baseball, and it seemed to be the same teams all the time. And in football, they set it up. It was the genius of, and also the genius of those early owners that Wellington Mara was willing to go in with the Packers, uh, that it wasn't just going to be Wellington Mara in New York and Hallis in uh, Chicago and Brown in Cleveland that they all were going to share it. And that was really the genius of how they formed the NFL. But I think probably John Madden had more influence if he took his coaching, his um, broadcasting, and his game than anybody in the history of the NFL. Yeah, that's why I would put him on that short list, because as you say, it's multifaceted and uh, it's very amusing to me. I mean, there's a lot of millennials running around who probably know him prominently from the video game. And I think, uh, if, if I read correctly, I think that was something that he would joke about in later years of being predominantly known for that by, by younger people. And he had this incredible body of work uh, that had come previous to that. And uh, again, I, I felt like everything you had to say at the memorial service, uh, those, were, those were some great stories there. And just as somebody who's a friend of his, it just it, it, any of the aspects of his that you feel like are underappreciated, not as well known as they should be. Like, what would you tell somebody to to port, to give more of a full figure of what they think they know of John Madden? What would you say? Uh, I'd say two things, and one of them is something Andy Reid said um, out at the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, I, I'd say two things. One, I would say he was such a brilliant businessman that people didn't get at all. He was buying real estate in Arizona when he was a coach. He uh, became a billionaire off the Madden game, which he designed entirely with a guy named Trip Hawkins, who uh, got out of Harvard and came to John. It was back when Pong, if anybody remembers Pong, was that game in mm -hmm. the bar. But you could only see, like, Trip had only seven people on each side and John said no I'm not going to do it unless we figure out a way to really represent the game and they worked a long time at it and he was a genius businessman and but yet also uh and he lived at the Dakota you know where John Lennon lived in New York I mean he was really a savvy businessman but he also and this was captured by Andy Reid Andy Reid said that what he learned from John Madden was never lose your childish love of life mm -hmm. Well, 
I can see that. I can see that in him because that's the one thing, you know, and as somebody who didn't know John Madden, but from afar, I think that's one of the things that he seemed to sort of consistently ooze in many different ways here was a love of life. That's uh, for somebody to have said that to him. Yeah, I, I can see that because I, I think to most people who, who loved him from afar, didn't know him. Uh, that would come as no surprise at all. That's a that's a great uh, you know confirmation of that from you. Yeah, he would stop. I mean, we'd be we'd be going through Utah on our way to a 49er game, and he'd see a little league game or something. We'd just stop, or he'd see like a carnival. I remember going out of El Paso once from a Cowboy game on up to uh, I, I, maybe we were doing a game in LA, and um, he would have the bus stop at a carnival. And he always was willing to be John Madden, which a lot of mega celebrities like that are not. You know, he didn't care if you were a cab driver or a king. He had time for you. Yeah, and I'll tell you, and it was very interesting because when you were talking about at the memorial service, among other things, so your, your experiences of traveling with him, again, to be honest with you, that had never really occurred to me. I didn't really know if anybody else did. I, I, I knew that probably the majority of people who worked with him on broadcast were flying there. And everything. So the fact that you got to, to do the Madden Cruiser, that's one of those things, and I, I'm sure this has occurred to you over a period of time, that like that's one of those like peak experiences in life that probably so many people wish they could have. Like you got to live that out. You drove across the country in the Madden Cruiser with John Madden, and that in and of itself, I mean, you know, forget all the professional accomplishments and everything else you've done there. Just as far as like a thing that people would, would give their left arm to do. That's something you got to do. I'm sure you've reflected on that. Yeah, I guess because he was he was a teacher. That's yeah. what he he regarded himself. Um, I remember Rick Majerus once told me that the greatest thing anybody could ever call him was coach. Mm -hmm. And I think John Madden felt the same way. He, he he wanted you to learn, and he wanted to know about you. And he was he was up for any conversation, no matter where it went. And he enjoyed it, and he took his time, his great observer, like really like a Mark Twain. Uh, he could look out the window and just see things, and <laughs> it was a whole education, yeah. Actually, all those guys, people don't know that Pat Summerall yes. was a Russian major in college, and when he got out of school, he took, um, you know, this is what, the late 50s when mm -hmm. he got out of school, I guess, early 60s? No, late 50s. And he took the train from Vladivostok in Eastern Russia all the way to Moscow. I mean, these people are really interesting, and I felt like it, it was such a laboratory for me of learning. Yeah, it just, uh, it, it almost feels like as far as some of the characters over that period of time, you know, it's like they don't make them like that anymore. I mean, you know, you, you look at some of the other people that uh, were at uh, CBS Sports there, like you you may not have overlapped very long on, on the timeline with Jimmy the Greek, but, you know, him being there, just, you know, all, all these characters just, just from a different age that are just so utterly fascinating and to try and explain them to people of today it's really kind of tough to put it into words with a lot of these guys well they're still pretty you know tony romo's really interesting and jim nance yes. for all time so that's true yeah, I, I don't know that it's just that um i was privileged because i've had a 45 year career that i i kind of got to drop in on a lot of sports and a lot of athletes and meet people from different parts of the world and yeah i just feel like um i don't have a billion dollars but i've had a billion dollar life absolutely yes and uh you know point well taken and i, I do tend to kind of you know 
you know, wax about the good old days on that. But as, as you point out uh, truthfully there, yet again, uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely some very interesting folks on the landscape today. And uh, just because they're not uh, cut from the same cloth as Jimmy the Greek, it doesn't mean they're not interesting in their own right. So, yes, point well taken. And uh, again, I, I know that, uh, you know, from the experiences that you've had over a period of time and building up the record that you did, you know, I know that is something where at this point in time here, uh, you know, taking things into your own hands with podcasting and, and diving into that, I know that's something where, you know, it's allowed you to pursue your love uh, of having these uh, conversations, much like the one that we're having here, you know, being able to dive into the nitty gritty with folks. So talk about that and what that experience has been like for you to be able to get into these conversations with people in this forum. Oh, thanks for asking. I am um, CEO, the head of content at SiriusXM, uh, had offered me a job um, a couple years ago, and I, I said, no, you know, I, I really don't know if that fits right now, and then the pandemic came, and I did like 60 other people's podcasts. I mean, I was doing Huddle Up with Gus Barat, so I mean, I was mm -hmm. doing everybody's, and so then when Scott Greenstein called me again and said, I said, yes, yes, I'd love to do it, because um, I do love to have conversations with people, and uh, so I've, I've tried to really diversify it. I've tried to I think it's Robert Parrish this week, and I covered all those Lakers-Celtic games, but I had never asked Robert if, of course, he was known as the Chief, and Jack Nicholson, of course, would sit in the front row at all the games at, back at the Forum and at Boston Garden, and I never knew if they talked about the Chief. So Robert Parrish talked about that, how he and Jack Nicholson got to talk about the Chief from one flew over the cuckoo's nest and then Robert Parrish. So I, I really just... Um, I've just picked people that I want to talk to that I think would be interesting. So, yeah, it's really been all kinds of people. Um, David Duchovny wrote a book called Bucky Effing Dent. Uh -huh. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he must be a Red Sox fan. But it wasn't. He was a Yankee fan. And the character in there thought that Fenway was a little league park. So here I am. I'm fighting with David Duchovny like five minutes into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's probably got to be a herd to be believed. And, uh, you know, again, yeah, as you say, touching back on, uh, you know, the, the, some of the, some of the golden years of the NBA uh, that you were covering there at uh, CBS. And uh, if, if I remember correctly, I believe I read this uh, about you. Was it true that your favorite player growing up was Sam Jones? Yes, we just lost him. I used yes. to, um, on Halloween, everybody would dress up as Mary Poppins, mm -hmm. and I would go as number 24. I'd write it on a white t-shirt, you know, magic marker, and I learned a bank shot. And I got to know Sam really, really well, probably for the last 25 years. And um, I'd see Sam... Uh, usually at least once a year, and he would always say to me, Leslie, really, you're in your 60s, you cannot dress up on Halloween, you know, <laughs> in your Sam Jones, which now he's given me some of his game jerseys, and nice. I say, I don't care, Sam, you were my idol, and that's that. Yeah. So, major loss, major, a lot of Celtics, you know, lost yes. Havlicek, lost KC, lost, um, you know, Russell's about the only guy still hanging in, the greatest of them all. Yes, and, uh, well, somebody that my hometown and your hometown share, uh, Bill Fitch just passed away recently, a uh, great yes, coach. Yes, 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 and, and uh, he, yes, and he was, I was not really close to him. Well, I mean, enough that when Dick and I got married, Red Auerbach and Bill Fitch and Bill Russell came to our 
wedding. I'm remarried since then, but it was kind of hilarious, you know, that everybody at the wedding, they didn't care that Leslie Visser and Dick Stockton were getting married. They were like, oh my God, is that Bill Russell at the Shrimp Bowl? Oh, that's that's incredible being able to have them there. And uh, yes, and Mr. Stockton, uh, a broadcast legend in his own right, uh, to be sure. That's got to be incredible to have uh, had them there. It, well, I will tell you this, uh, Leslie, and I'll, I'll work this out with you uh, off air, but myself and two of my colleagues on the program here, with this being the 75th anniversary of the league, uh, just putting out uh, our, our little book here, the top 75 players in pro basketball history. We'll have that sent along to you. Sam Jones is in there, spoiler alert. So you'll get to read about him and Hondo and a lot of these other guys here. So Wait a minute. Did you do the official one? We didn't do the official one. This is the unofficial one, Leslie. Nobody uh, oh, no, no, nobody oh, censors our list. Yes. This is, yes, FDH Publishing. Bird better be in your top 25, too. Uh, he is prominently in there. Bill Russell is prominently in there. Uh, Boston factors in, obviously, disproportional, as you would expect. And, uh, yes, uh, there, there is. Uh, so we'll, uh, I'll, I'll work that out with you. But, uh, we, we, you know, whatever, whatever office you're using here these days, we'll, uh, we'll send it out to you uh, to, to thank okay. you. Because, uh, okay. you know, I, again, it's, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you in for, for a conversation uh, like this. And, uh I, I just, I'm, I'm very, very appreciative of it, and I uh, would look forward to uh, chewing the fat with you uh, subsequently. Thank you. I'd love it. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you Goodbye. so much, Leslie. Really appreciate it. Uh, the legendary Leslie Visser, everybody. Thank you, and thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1448.